1: Hello, hello, and welcome, or should I say welcome back, to the Indie Football Podcast. It is Wednesday the 29th of May. I'm your host, Jack Pitbrook. I'm joined today by Chief Sports Writer Jonathan Liu. Say hello, Jonathan. Hi, Jack. Um, we're doing today's podcast from the Hermit's Cave pub in Camberwell, which is one of our favourite places to come, uh, and because, uh, because of Champions League final tomorrow, I'm flying very early. Uh, can't really get into the office for various reasons So if the sound quality is not, as, is not quite as immaculate as usual uh, Then I'm sorry But I do think we've got a lot to talk about With Saturday's final in mind Not least because we have just published on independent.co.uk Johnny's fascinating interview with Liverpool manager Jürgen Klopp Who he saw in Marbella last week uh, It's a really, really interesting piece There's an awful lot in there for Liverpool fans and non-Liverpool fans about Klopp as a man and what motivates him and how he feels about his team in the season. Um, Johnny, did, did, what did you make of him?
0: Uh, hello, Jack. Hello, everyone. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, he was nice. He was a nice guy. I, I really... I, thought, I came away from the interview thinking, oh, not quite, not quite nailed this. Because, I don't know, I think when you watch him on TV... Or even like you, you, you read stuff that that he says. You, you kind of feel like he could be your mate, and I really wanted like the Ergon Drop to be my friend forever, and we'd sort of bond and we'd have a hug and, and like we'd you know would would form kind of some some kind sort of lifelong uh, you know companionship. Uh, that didn't happen, but he did. He did. You know, when you, when you run the tape back, you, you just say a lot of really interesting stuff. And I, I suppose what, what, what I was trying to do was. Get away from the regular, like, is Bobby Firmino going to be fit? Do you need a trophy? Uh, you know, what, what, you know what's your favorite color or whatever? What kind of, you know, all, all that sort of uh, you know, banal press conference stuff. Uh, much of it comes comes in embargoed sections. Um, and so, um, it was quite, quite open ended, uh, I, I think, quite a lot of it. Uh, I thought. He was he was really interesting on sort of how he processes failure or how he, how he he's processed you know defeat because I think there's a there's a view of him that he takes he takes defeat really badly and and I think from those people who know him and, and from talking to him it's actually quite the opposite he, he gets over it really quickly I mean he he rants and raves on the touchline and he, sometimes he can be a little bit grouchy in press conferences but but essentially. There's a, there's a kind of a, a perspective to him that, that means he can sort of brush defeat off it's like right it's a defeat it's fine like it, it hurts but you know we move on to the next thing
1: what was really interesting to me was him um, him talking about the season that Liverpool had just had in the Premier League where obviously they got 97 points and yet still finished second behind Manchester City um, meaning that if they don't beat Tottenham on Saturday they will end the season with nothing um, which would really be a disaster, given how well they've played. Do you think he and he did he did say to you that we you know Liverpool are under more pressure than Tottenham for that reason? Do you feel like do you do you agree that they need to win to save their season from disaster, or do you think he can still still maintain that that sense of like of pride and how well they played, even if they do happen to lose on Saturday? Well, I would say that.
0: Like losing to Tottenham on Saturday, you know, going in as favourites, given the season they've had in the league, given the kind of trajectory they've been on under Klopp, would be utterly devastating. It would, it would possibly be, you know, the biggest blow that, that Klopp's Liverpool have suffered, possibly even the biggest blow that Klopp's ever suffered as a manager, simply because of the expectation levels there. But equally, though, it's you, you, you kind of wouldn't bet against them coming back next season even stronger because that's the sort of that's the level of of messianic belief that he's, he's sort of instilled in them this idea that the journey is, is more important than, than the or as important as the destination silverware like you said is, is the end goal and you know that's what we all want but it can't just be about silverware if you've got sort of uh, 20 teams in the Premier League you can't have 19 losers it's got to be about the moments and the memories that you create along the way and, and the fact that you know, they beat beaten Barcelona that, that, that you know beating Barcelona 4-0 at home doesn't go away because you lose a Champions League final I think that's, that's kind of the, the perspective he was getting at whilst obviously they, it's a final and really it doesn't, it doesn't matter you know ultimately all, all that matters is, is who won and who lost well, I, think, I think he's also trying to pay tribute to the fact that they are there and certainly last season and possibly even this season nobody really expected them to get there.
1: What another thing I found really interesting in it was this the bit towards the end where he says that as much as he loves football he's not obsessed by he doesn't have a need to win everything. And I think the quote is why should I you know 95% of his life is perfect why should I only worry about the last 5%? Is that right? Like why should I does he need to be obsessed with winning every game and every trophy? When he, you know, when he is so content as a person and he has achieved so much as a manager, and what interested? We we were just talking about this off air. Uh, you know, you can draw quite an obvious contrast between that and say Guardiola or Wenger, who set themselves up as more per- perfectionist managers. I don't think that Guardiola would ever say, "Why should I worry about the last five percent?" When he's a guy who's consumed by the last five percent, mm. and you know, who, who will. Do you think that, like, do you do you think that is an accurate characterization of Klopp? Do you think he is not a perfectionist, or do you think it's part of an act to make himself look like a kind of more of a chilled out guy who isn't who isn't like as much of a of a freak? Uh, if that's not too mean a way of putting it, as someone like Guardiola.
0: Yeah, I I, I do think if if not if not self guidology maybe there's kind of a an element of reinforcing the personal brand there I, th- I think you know all, we, we all talk about personal brands these days and Guardiola's is obsession and I think Klopp's, Klopp's brand certainly his public brand now is you know friend first boss second chilled out entertainer third and part of part of his, his whole shtick is that look guys whatever happens it's fine and, and that's kind of how he gets his team to play such like handbrake off football, um, I, d- I do think he's probably a little bit more consumed by the idea of success and failure than maybe he lets on. I think there's there's definitely something there about. I mean, he there, I, at least two or three times in the interview, he sort of he's talking and then he kind of takes on the persona. He'll he'll quote some imaginary critic saying like, ah oh, yes, but you lost six finals." And you know, unprompted by me, he'll say, "Oh yes, but you lost six finals, or Albert oh, Pep Guardiola wins anything." And and that to me suggests that he's either you know attuned, verging on kind of hyper sensitive to how he's perceived and what people what people think of him, possibly even what his legacy is going to be. And I think that that's a strand that I think he's probably keener to play down, and is probably. Could probably consumes him a little bit more than he might like to admit in public.
1: And that's really interesting. And I certainly think that Klopp benefits from the fact that Guardiola is so is so extreme and unusual in so many ways, In personally, and how obsessed he is with winning, that he leaves basically a huge space behind him. Like, you can be one in, you know, I mean, not to conceive of this in political terms, but if you can be, I mean, if you were to say that Guardiola is so intense as to be unusual if you can be like one inch more usual than Guardiola then suddenly you look like a really normal then you can pull the normal guy act and I think that is something that Klopp benefits from and that's why I think Guardiola might have more in common with someone like Wenger um, than and it allows Klopp to be the ordinary guy and also Murcio Pochettino who we'll talk about in our next segment. To get started, visit plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. And then on the other side, we've got uh, Mauricio Pochettino, who both Johnny and I have spent time with this week. Uh, we were just talking- socially, <laughs> yeah, socially. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not in the hermit's cave. <laughs> uh, we and we were just discussing our air like the extent to which he's under more or less pressure than. Jurgen Klopp. Um, I think Klopp's under quite a lot of pressure. Um, Obviously, having lost last year's final, having lost the 2013 Champions League final, having lost the Europa League final with Liverpool. uh, You know, having spent so much money on his team, needing to, needing, I think, to win a Champions League to cap off a lot of his achievements over the last few years in the game. Whereas, and I think that while no, you know, nobody would have expected at the start of the season Liverpool to be in the final nevertheless Liverpool being in the final is less surprising than Tottenham being in the final which I think we can all agree you know, is a very very unusual event um, And now that my, my thinking on this and I'm not sure Johnny completely agrees is that this means that the final basically represents a bit of a free swing for Tottenham I think that they've already not that they will be okay with not winning but I think that they already have an achievement they can be very proud of, and I think that is that is how the season would be remembered, even if they were to lose. Like they could lose, they they could lose and lose with pride. Whereas I think that door is shut from Liverpool. I don't think Liverpool have got that option. Um, and me and what I'm what I'm trying to get at here is uh, my impression is that this means that Tottenham in general and Pochettino in particular are more. More relaxed going into this final,
0: uh, the Liverpool are. But Johnny, you know, I get the sense you disagree. Yeah, Jack. I mean, you're talking of your butthole here. It's um, it's, I genuinely don't think that. Um, that's a joke, by the way. I mean, he is. But like, you know, we're friends, uh, and, and friends don't talk about that about each other that way, unless it's for maximum banter. Uh, it's 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 something that I don't. I think is it a narrative that is sort of imposed from the outside? I, I genuinely don't think that within the Spurs dressing room that this is a theory that's getting any even subconsciously I don't think it's getting any kind of play you know the the Spurs players are kind of of openly volunteering you know that we are not happy to get to the the final like we're not happy being you know just being here Uh, you know we're we're here to win it Pochettino has been talking for two or three years even in in the face of some quite serious derision that the Champions League and the Premier League are the only trophies worth winning and people scoffing at Spurs winning the Champions League but you know, they're there, they're one game away so the idea of Spurs winning the Champions League may seem kind of ridiculous from the outside but I think on the inside it's, it's felt like a realistic goal for quite some time And and the idea that the idea that they have less pressure than Liverpool again I think makes sense as a narrative but you know, you, if you talk about Klopp's record in finals, it kind of pales in comparison to that. You know, that Tottenham, who are basically the, the arch bottlers of semi-finals and finals, Spurs. Spurs lose this, and it, it, especially if they get outplayed and, and, and lose this well. And Arsenal win on on Wednesday night, which which uh, a game that might well have finished by this time. You know, the time this podcast comes out, you're kind of back to square one as a, as a club. That Spurs are the team that they're, they're the nearly team. They're the team that. Kind of impress and do well, but there's kind of always someone better than them, which I think is is almost kind of embedded in the Spurs psyche. I think reaching the Champions' League final is a massive achievement and is a massive and surprising achievement. But in order to truly break the cycle of fatalism, I think they I think they have to win it.
1: But do you not think that that pressure and expectation go hand in hand, as in like they have a proportional relationship, and that? At no point will the expectation around Tottenham have been high enough to create that much pressure. Whereas, for, whereas Liverpool, like by any measure, have been have been carrying more expectation around with them, not just this season but over the last few seasons. And that that expectation, if not, I mean, if not kind of paid off, which is basically what Saturday would represent after all their progress, that would be crippling to them. Whereas for Tottenham, like. Tottenham's burdens are just not as much as Liverpool that's kind of how I that's how I see it I mean
0: that, that I guess rests upon on how much weight you want to give to, to history because it's only really in, in historical terms that that Liverpool you know have to have the greater weight of expectation I mean okay they reached the final last season but over the last you know, four years essentially basically since Clofford Watch here have both been managers of, of their separate clubs, there's been actually very little to separate them in terms of in terms of quality. I think certainly in terms of Premier League points and league positions, uh, you would you would argue that they're two very evenly matched sides So I think that basically comes down to history, right? And and how much are players aware of of that history. And I, that, that that's
1: interesting, because I was looking at it the opposite way around, like I. I don't think, I don't really think players care about what happened at their club more than about five years before, uh, at any given point. Uh, but I, so I don't think that Liverpool players are necessarily burdened by the expectation of, you know, the, uh, the triumphs of Liverpool teams in the 70s or 80s. And I don't think, I'm not sure how much Spurs players care about the fact they haven't won the titles since Bill Nicholson. Because I just don't think footballers think that way. Mm-hmm. What I was getting at is the expectation derived from the fact that liverpool got 97 points this year and spent an awful lot of the year thinking that they were probably marginal favorites to win the premier league and the fact that last and the fact that last year they got to the champions league final uh, whereas tottenham you know don't get me wrong tottenham were incredible in 2016 17 where they got uh, was it 80, 80 was it 86 premier league points and came second
0: i don't The girl was the one who remembers yeah. points
1: it was like so i think i'm pretty sure they got 86 points uh, and came second, which is like an unbelievably high amount uh, for them to have got. But I don't think that, I kind of feel like in the last two years, I mean, clearly Spurs' Premier League points totals have decreased, I think, to something like 77 last year, then 71 this year. And because of all the, what Pochettino spent the first half of the season complaining about, all the circumstances around the club, the lack of money, the new stadium, the lack of signings, um, I don't think that this has been... You know, nobody at the start of the season thought this was going to be a season where Spurs win something. Whereas with Liverpool, that was the expectation at the start of the season. And that's what I'm getting at, is that Spurs, like, this were... This has felt so unlikely in the context of Spurs' environment, whereas for Liverpool it feels more like a consequence of their environment.
0: Yeah, but like in February, everybody was saying, "Oh, Liverpool should sack off the Champions League and concentrate on the Premier League."
1: No, idiots were saying that. You,
0: that's, a, that's a bad faith argument. No, no, we, we, we were definitely discussing this on the podcast, and, and there are no idiots on the podcast, apart from maybe. Actually, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: really, like were people actually saying Liverpool should sack off the Champions League? I I'm no, not, no, I literally but, missed but, that. But, but
0: the, it should not be a priority for them, and that almost they had such a good opportunity to win the Premier League that, like the Champions League, kind of paled into significance You got Liverpool fans, respected Liverpool fans, people with, with podcasts and large Twitter following, saying that, like, give us you know give us a choice between like a sixth European Cup and winning the Premier League, and it's literally no contest. Um, so oh yeah, I,
1: now now you say that I I certainly remember Liverpool fans saying that the Premier League was the preference to the Champions League
0: like the strong, yeah. strong preference like to, to the extent that if it came to down to resting players rest them for you know for Bayern or rest them for uh, you know Porto I don't remember people saying that and so I mean, all I'm saying is that you know it's quite a recent phenomenon this and that the ebbs and flows of I'm really sorry narrative uh, are, are kind of something that dressing rooms are largely immune from
1: Johnny given that you think Spurs are under
0: lots of pressure and I don't how do you think they're going to cope? I think they're going to get battered Um, I, I, I don't think it'll be the occasion so much as the fact that they are really prone to bad starts and Liverpool are really prone to good ones I think I can't remember what the exact figures are but they have Conceded an alarming number of goals in the first fifteen minutes, even the first five minutes in the Champions League this season. Yeah, Ajax away, Ajax home, Ajax home was about fifteen minutes. Um, Barcelona away, uh, PSV, I think one of the PSV games. They Conceded very early. City Barcelona away, home. they
1: city away. They conceded early, scored early
0: twice, and then conceded again. And you can still call it early. Did it home? Conceded an early penalty. Yeah. And I just think, like Tottenham, like to, especially in, in in Europe, they like to ease themselves into games. They like to to get everybody on the ball, pass it around a bit, and that is where Liverpool are just so good. I mean, it's, I, I know it was it was kind of lesser opposition, but you saw what they did against Huddersfield, just kind of hunted them down within about, and scored within nine seconds. Liverpool have always looked to seize control of games, often in like the very first few kicks. And I, th- I think if Spurs go a goal down, it's going to be really, really hard for them to, to claw their way back.
1: Yeah, and Pochettino's made a habit of getting the getting the team wrong um, in some of Spurs' European games this year, which has cost them. And then ha- basically having to take a bit of time and then make a change to get it right. So. I mean, it, the Ajax at home game you know, is a good example where Spurs had three centre-backs, which was kind of useless up against a team playing with the false nine. And it actually, it actually took Vertonghen getting concussion and having to go off and bring Sissoko on and switching back to the 4-2-3-1 for Spurs to find a formation that suited them. Um, and, you know, like Johnny was just saying, this has been a, a bit of an issue through the Champions League, campaign this year do you I mean are you Are you confident in what Spurs should play are you expecting to go for the
0: four-two-three-one. that I think most people are going for I, I wouldn't I honestly wouldn't put it past Pochino stubborn as he is to go kind of almost 3-on-3 three three, uh, at the back just because I think he I, I just think he instinctively likes that formation I don't think it'll I don't think it'll work that well for them you have to be so so good to pass your way through this Liverpool team and at their best Spurs can be but it's often needed somebody like Harry Wings in midfield as a you know as a kind of a, a lightning rod, um, and so many times against really top class opposition, they've struggled to pass their way out. They've ended up getting hemmed into their own by, by their own corner flag and having to punt the ball up the touchline. Trippier, I, I don't think is, yeah, I, I think Trippier's like a really weak spot. Mané against Trippier could be very ugly. Uh, yeah, totally
1: gone. Yeah, I think for me, I think he ha- he has to go four two three one. Yeah. There's no, he, you know, he he has to have some soak and Winks together. I know Winks has only played one game in the last three or four months, but that was City at home, which was probably Spurs his, you know, his, by, by, by any measure, Spurs his best performance over that period of time. Um, so he needs to and Winks in there together, and then really, like with the one big decision he's got to make is Kane. Um, I think the. And, you know, you could say that Kane you know, Kane hasn't played for as long as Winks in the sense that he's, uh, you know, he did his ankle in that City home game back in April and has been recovering from it ever since. But it's a bit different because, you know, Winks had a problem in his hip, which he tried to get solved with injections, couldn't, had it operated on, and is now fine. Whereas Kane has got, like, the long, slow recovery from an ankle ligament injury. And that's different. Like, it takes longer. It, you know, you can't... There is no way to expedite it or to speed it up and i 'm you know what i 'm not i 've been thinking about this this week i 'm not certain that playing that playing kane is the right answer for spurs like he 's ob- obviously he 's a great player there 's two things one is that i don 't if he 's not a hundred percent and i don 't think he can be a hundred percent with no match practice then i think i 'm not sure how much sense it makes to play him, not least because would you want a striker who is not 100% going up against Virgil van Dijk? Like, Virgil van Dijk is is so physically powerful. I wonder what damage Kane, an 80% Kane can actually do on the pitch.
0: Yeah, I mean, if Kane is not at 100% fitness, Spurs are essentially playing 10 men going forward because Kane, when he's not totally sharp and totally on it, is actually really easy to mark out in the game because he's not quick, he's not, he's not that mobile. His, his, his movement is good, but... And, and he's, he's an incredible penalty, penalty box finisher, and, and these days he's increasingly I know, a very adept distributor. But if he doesn't have that kind of that little burst of speed or that that the kind of the, the robustness to get the ball in the first place, there's, a, there's absolutely no way he's going to get to use those those qualities. Um, which is, I mean, which is why I think it's it's quite um, quite bad news for Spurs fans. I, I think he's pretty much nailed on to play. He was saying yesterday that if the game was tomorrow, i.e. Tuesday night, he would be ready.
1: Yeah, and the, and the other issue here is more psychological, which is that uh, this thing, which I've written about a bit this season, it's that Spurs, you know, Kane is a great player, but I'm not sure Spurs are always better with Kane in the team. Like, if you coming back from his last ankle injury, the team collapsed a bit when Kane came back. I think it's Burnley. You know, I think sometimes I think some of the Spurs players play out of their skins when Kane isn't there to prove a point, to show they can do it without him. Then, when Kane comes back in, they hide behind him a little bit because they know that they just feel psychologically like he's there to bail them out. Um, and I, you know, I've heard separately, I've heard from from different sources close to the Spurs dressing room this week that that you know some maybe some Spurs players don't want Kane to play, or maybe they have got some reservations about. Throwing him straight back into the team uh, if he's not going to be at his best. I also, you know, equally you could say there's a psychological benefit to having someone like that on the bench because you can throw him on. But what I do think is it's such a it's it's an absolute hiding to nothing for Pochettino that decision. Like it's one of those decisions where it's so you know (laughs) he's only got two options. There's there is no way of fudging it. And whatever he does, if it doesn't go right, or even if it does, he will get hammered for it because it's, a, it's such an easy thing for people to latch onto uh, as an explanation. And it's, so, and it's the kind of thing where people are very reluctant to hear the alternative explanation yeah. on the other side of the argument.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the, the parallel is, is Diego Costa, right, who, uh, you know, whether you know, the will he won't he. Kind of overshadowed the whole build-up to the 2014 final, at Atletico Real, and he ends up playing, and what, he lost eight, eight or nine minutes. Yeah, yeah. And it cost, it cast, but it cast a shadow over the whole, like build-up, and in many ways, it cast a shadow over the game because, it, in, in many ways, if Atletico hadn't burned one of their substitutes, substitutes um, early, maybe they wouldn't have got ripped apart in extra time.
1: Yeah, com- completely. So it gives me a bit of like, pause for thought about Tottenham's chances. Um, can i I kind of I think Spurs will I think Spurs will lose I just think I just think Liverpool look, I just think Liverpool are better and stronger and probably better equipped for this particular game. I know that one thing people have been throwing around is this three week break uh, which you know might you know will this be a leveler for Spurs will because the, they were looking pretty tired at the end of the season you know will this be enough to kind of uh, to, to slow Liverpool down who obviously finished the season in pretty good form. But I don't know, I mean, I I don't know whether, I'd probably be reluctant to read too much into, like, how much of a difference a three-week break will make, psychologically or
0: physically. Potentially, it's potentially a bit of a leveller. I mean, like, have you ever been on a three-week holiday and tried to write a piece on your first day back? I could barely find a space ball.
1: No, I've actually never been on a three-week holiday, so I
0: I wouldn't know what it's like. What's it like? (laughs) Uh, I'm actually trying to think of when I've ever been on a three-week holiday. It's possible I haven't either. I'm thinking more like two weeks. Uh, I suppose like, the like the biggest comparison is when I go and do a cricket tour or something and I'm away for three weeks or, or you know, three and a half weeks and then come back and try and write about football. And it's uh it's not happening. It's not happening. I have to I have to look up the most basic of things. Like you know, like what, and Golo what Kante, who
1: did he play for again? Yeah. Oh, ngolo Kante brackets Chelsea. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Or like the spelling of Obama Yang or things like that.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one. And then, um, Johnny, you're, So I'm going out there. I'm flying out first thing tomorrow morning. That is Thursday morning, uh, along with Miguel and also our colleagues, Simon Hughes and Mark Hoechley. Johnny, you're staying in London for the Cricket World Cup?
0: Uh, yes, yeah. And, you know, uh, for, for, for personal reasons. Uh, I'm not going to Madrid. Um, but. Where are you going to watch the game? I'm watching it at home with my my heavily pregnant wife? Oh, what well, those those are the personal reasons. Uh, so I kind of uh, let the cat out of the bag there. Um, yeah, with uh, a couple of mates and some beers and a purple mango takeaway curry, the best takeaway curry in South London.
1: Yeah, well, I'm I'm actually massively looking forward to it. Uh, flying tomorrow, it's going to be my second Champions League final ever, but my first one with something to do. Really, I did the 23- I got a, a seat at the 2013 game between. Dortmund and Bayern, uh, which of course clock bottled,
0: uh, but I'm not expecting him to bottle this one in quite the same way. Little um, little tip: if if you're in Madrid or if if any fans are going to Madrid, uh, Maison Chistu uh, is is a a restaurant in I think Via Martín. I I don't know. I don't know Madrid, but um, Maison Chistu. Uh, I met uh, our former, the late Ed Malian, uh, there for a for, for a meal about four or five years ago, and. They have, um, they, they, they have one of these hot plates where you cook the steak yourself and like you have a giant ball of lard and you smear the plate with it and you cook the raw steak on it for a couple of minutes. It's, um, it's exceptional. It's really good. It's Gareth Bale's favourite restaurant in Madrid as well. And his favourite food is the, the egg and chips. That's true. Well, well there you
1: go. Um, taking the podcast... To, <laughs> we're just trying to fill that kind of uh, Spain knowledge gap left by the departure of Edmalion. Um, but thank you very much for listening and next week we will bring you a podcast probably as low-tech as this one, almost certainly from Porto, where I will be with Miguel to look back on the Champions League final and to look forward to the Nations League thanks very much for listening, bye